Follow along with me, if you would, from 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. When you preach through books of the Bible, you have to come to passages like this. And you have to read it. And you have to wonder, why would anyone want to hear me talk about this passage? Because I don't know about you, but when I come to my own personal Bible reading and I read something like this, I go, okay, check, got it. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, bad dudes. Don't be like them. Okay. But is there perhaps more in here for us than what we see on the surface? It's interesting that this passage begins with an unnamed prophet of God coming to Eli to deliver this message. If you look at verse 27, there came a man of God to Eli. That's all we get about this guy. Most of the time when you see a prophet in the Bible, we get a name, we get a family name, a lineage, where they came from. Oftentimes we even get stories of the call of the prophet by God. Jeremiah's call, Isaiah's call are very distinct as well. Here we have this unnamed person coming to Eli's house. Apparently, Eli knows enough to listen to this man, but we don't know who he was, and that is on purpose because it is the message of God that is being delivered, not the message of a man. It makes me wonder about times where 
people have confronted me about things that I've done wrong and how important it is to have that relationship there so that when that person's telling me, hey, you messed this up, that I know they're coming from a place of knowing me, hopefully loving me and caring for my betterment and all these things. But with this unnamed man of God, what we see as a, before he even speaks, as a terrible judgment of Eli's character before the Lord, is that this is a man that Eli doesn't even know. And it unfortunately reflects his relationship with the holy God of Israel as well. Eli is met by a man unnamed, unknown, and receives a message from a God who he practically does not know either. The title for our message this morning is Honoring the Holy God. The call from this passage, though it is overrun with judgment and doom and gloom and sorrow and hopelessness, is that there is a missing piece from Eli's life And it is that simple call of honoring a holy God. This holy God we see in this passage is one who weighs our lives on response to his own goodness. This is the starting point for us, for grabbing the truth about God out of this passage. Now, we know from background here, if you're following along and remembering what's going on in 1 Samuel, we start off with this beautiful story of Elimelech and his wife, Hannah, And how Hannah is barren and longing for a child and and she prays before the Lord. She puts her trust in his plan. No matter what happens, God is good and I am content and at peace with his rule. And Hannah is blessed with a son. And just as she promised, she devotes the son to the work of the priesthood for his entire life. She gladly honors the Lord with her promise that she made. And Samuel grows before the Lord. He ministers to the Lord. He grows in stature with people. His reputation is one of nobility and honor. He grows in grace before God. God pours more and more grace out into Samuel's life. But at the same time, as we're running along this story of Samuel's track, we're also seeing the demise of Eli and that of his sons. It's really easy at this point in a book to kind of say, you know, author, it'd be really nice if we could just skip back to the main character here. The book is not called the book of First Eli or the book of First Hophni and Phinehas. But the author is taking pains, literally, I would say, to communicate the terrible fate of these men who were called to minister before God and to draw people up into that ministry and that worship of a holy God. How they have dishonored him it might be helpful for us to actually start looking at this passage a little bit further ahead. So if you would go with me to verse 30, and about halfway through, now the Lord declares. This is where we're going to get kind of the big, meaty theological truth that that first point in your outline in your bulletin comes from. Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God makes it very simple and clear for us. If you want to be honored by God, you need to be one who honors God. Well, how is it that we exactly do that? The holy God weighs our lives on our response to his goodness. 
If you back up from that verse 30 to the beginning of this message of this unnamed prophet, the Lord says, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father? Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel? He's talking about Aaron all the way back in the book of Exodus. That Aaron was chosen to be the high priest and that his line would carry this responsibility of priesthood before God. He says, I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire. The reason, or rather the nature of our honoring God begins with recognizing his goodness already revealed to us. God does not intend relationships with his people to look like what's going on with Eli. Again, that's why it starts out with an unknown prophet coming and knocking on Eli's door. Eli says, who are you? And without a word, the man says, thus saith the Lord. And I think Eli got the message. And I think that as pointed as this message was, it didn't matter who was delivering the message. The truth was in it. Eli could very well have responded again, as as you or I might feel, if we're confronted by someone we don't know, and saying, who even are you? You hear all these judgments. We can, we can put those things aside in our minds because we're so wrapped up in who does this person think that they are? And yet when it is God's word that is speaking to us, it almost doesn't matter what vessel it comes through, does it? <coughs> Excuse me. And so the message begins with this idea of God's goodness revealed to Eli's house, to his ancestor Aaron and so on. This message comes in three parts, that first being the grace of God revealed to his lineage, to his house, his goodness to which we are called to respond as well. And then the turn comes in verse 29, where he says, so, so first we have the the presentation of God saying, here's what I've done. And then in verse 29 comes the why then, in response to my goodness, why then do you scorn Why is it that you literally, the word is to kick? Why is it that you kick at the goodness of God? This is at the root of dishonoring him, and this is why Eli's family is being judged. For scorning, particularly the sacrifices of God. If you notice in the earlier, that first part, God says through this prophet, I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. And yet they're scorning these offerings. Do you remember how they were doing this? God made allotment for each of the sacrifices of the houses of Israel to go and to burn these sacrifices as an act of worship, but then to also provide from that sacrifice for the well-being of the priests, whose job it was to take care of the temple. Hophni and Phinehas and their servants as well were going around with a fork and pulling the best parts of the sacrifices and keeping them for themselves. Rather than trusting the Lord for their portion, They made it all about them and about God secondarily, scorning the sacrifice of God. In verse 30 through 36, we see then how God is going to weigh the family line. Judgment is clearly pronounced, starting in verse 30. Therefore, says the Lord, I promised that this was going to happen, and yet far be it from me. It's very interesting, the language that is used here. It says, far be it from me to hold to my promise because you've broken the conditions of it. And because... You've broken these conditions. I will, verse 31 says, cut off your strength. Again, in verse 30, he says, far be it from me. And then he says, so far be it from me that I'm going to literally use this term to cut off. You cut you off, cut off your strength, to separate you from me, to create a distance so that you might see the distance that already exists spiritually 
between us. When God weighs the lives of the wicked, he does something very amazing, and it draws us back into Hannah's song in the earlier part of chapter 2. Because when God weighs the lives of the wicked, he ends up reversing earthly expectations. This is a great passage to refer back to the entirety of verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, but we'll just highlight a couple of things. Hannah's song, after devoting her son Samuel to the service of the Lord, begins with recognizing that there's no one holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. God is unique. And yet, Hannah says in verse 3, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now, I'll tell you at the front here, the, this word honor is very important because it gives the idea of giving weight to something. And so you can see a connection here for why we have this extending story of Eli and his sons because there are important theological and biblical terms that are being used here that are going to not only apply to Eli and his sons, but to the whole of God's people for all of time until Christ's return. She says, God is a God of knowledge. By him, actions are weighed, and Eli and his family's actions are being weighed in this message. Far be it from me. When God weighs the lives of the wicked, he reverses earthly expectations. Hannah shows that again. Verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. You're reversing these things. Those who were content and happy in their riches, now they're trying to just scrape together a living if they possibly can. We heard this in verse 36. Everyone who's left in your house, God says, shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. She'll say, please put me in one of the priest's places. It's hiring themselves out. Hannah's already predicted this in her song. In verses 6 through 7, we see some very intense language too. It is the Lord who kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, that is the Hebrew word for the grave, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. You see this reversal. This is the end result of God's judgment in the temporary realm that we see so often in the Old Testament, especially in passages like these. Verses 9 through 10 of Hannah's song, chapter 2. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. So again, we see that term, cut off, repeated again. And we're connecting this whole chapter together with some of these words the author's using. The blessing of Hannah's family are reversed in Eli's family. Hannah was the barren one who is now given many children. Eli was the one who had sons, full-grown adults, that are now going to be executed for their unfaithfulness, for their dishonoring, for their disregard of the Lord and his sacrifices. When is this going to happen? He gives a promise that there's a sign, and the sign is perhaps maybe the worst part. He says, this is going to be the sign that on the same day, your two sons, verse 34, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be, this shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And when the Bible, when a prophet talks about a sign, he's just saying like a, a picture of a worse thing that's going to happen. I mean, can you as a parent imagine a worse thing than watching the death of your two sons, knowing that it's going to come? And yet that's not even the worst of it, because he's going to put an end to Eli's house entirely. In chapter 2, verse 34, we see this sign, and then in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, we see the fulfillment of it. Because this war with the Philistines, and Saul becoming king and executing 
All the priests of Eli's household except for one. Do you remember that one? I'll leave one so that he may cry his eyes out and weep at the destruction of his household, his family's household. He's going to replace him. This is a reference to the priest Zadok. You can read more about him in 1 Kings chapter 2. But needless to say, this is the weighing of Eli's life. And this is the extent to which Eli has rejected the goodness of God. And when we reject the goodness of God, when we dishonor him, what we bring upon ourselves is all the effects of that. The removal of all the goodness of God. See, it's interesting, James, hundreds of years later in the New Testament, says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights who shows no partiality. That is that anything good in anyone's life, believer or not, is a gift from God. And if we dishonor that God, we're leaving behind all of the goodness of God. And so Eli is left with nothing but destruction. Eli's life is weighed. Can we know the weight of our own lives? Remember, God weighs our lives on our response to his goodness. It's fascinating. He doesn't weigh our lives based on our producing of goodness, but in our response to the goodness that he's poured out in our lives. And this is why those that don't know Christ, in so many cases, get so upset with the idea of a judgmental God. A God who would do such terrible things as even executing the adult children of this old elderly priest who's, from what we could tell, perhaps tried his best at certain points. God weighs based on the response that we give to his goodness. And Eli and his sons have scorned, kicked his goodness. They have not honored the holy God. So what does this look like for us? How can we take what's going on with Eli and do we even want to, right? Again, wouldn't we like to just kind of leave this as it is and say, Eli bad, Jesus good, follow Jesus, make sure we honor him. Let's not get any further into how we might be making some of the same mistakes. I can't help but think as a parent in this context, as how, how am I dealing with the sin of my own children? Are there, are there things that perhaps I'm not noticing that I'm letting slip by? I mean, it doesn't seem like it. I feel like my bigger problem is giving grace when my kids mess something up. But we know that Eli made an attempt. Do you remember earlier? Eli made an attempt to rebuke his children. But it seems from this prophet that that rebuke was made with a mouthful of whatever the sacrifice was that day. That Eli was participating in the very sin and, and basically boiling down his parents' parentage to do as I say, not as I do. It's easy for us to say one thing and, of course, act completely contrary to that thing. This seems to be part of Eli's problem. But perhaps for us today, we need to consider the conflict in our own hearts that when we give little weight to our sin, we are giving little weight to God. Here's a little bit of a lightener for the mood. Um, we're going to throw a picture up here from 1936. Maybe you've seen it before um, from the Saturday Evening Post. Can you kind of tell what's going on in here? We're talking about honoring things which has to do with weight. And I heard this used in a sermon one time. I don't remember who it was, so if I stole it from you, I apologize. Um, this was in 1936. There's this lady who's shopping 
obviously going for a full chicken carcass. And this was back when you would weigh and then price everything out. And so obviously this is, you know, oh my goodness, this is almost 100 years old, isn't it? Like in the next decade or so. so this is a very, very different time. But you can see what's going on unbeknownst to the two looking at how much does this chicken weigh. You can see the older lady on the left is just with one finger pushing the scale up and the gentleman who is uh, attending the purchase of, uh, the, of the chicken is just with one finger pushing the scale down. One is trying to make the chicken seem lighter than it is without removing anything from the scale. One is trying to make the chicken carcass seem heavier than it is without adding anything to the scale. And both of their eyes are on the meter, trying to see, what is this going to say? How much am I going to pay? How much am I going to charge? I think this is a kind of striking issue, not only for you know, the times. You could look up some historical context for this and find some very interesting things. But in reality, I think that this also kind of speaks to our observance of honoring the Lord. This, is titled, this painting is titled Tipping the Scales. And it's something I think that we often do when it comes to the matter of our own sin. See, if that chicken carcass could represent the matter of our sin and the matter of the weightiness of it and, and how, uh, how much impact does our sin really have, it'd be easy for us to say, you know, I, I'm seeing the scale move. I'm seeing it go a little bit higher. I think I need to push the scale up a little bit. I haven't done anything that's all that terrible here. And we look at other people, we look at other people's sin, and we might see their sin on the scale and start thinking, you know, I don't think it's actually correct there either. I think it's actually worse because that sin was done against me or because that sin does something that really bo particularly bothered me, perhaps. We can put the image away now. Thank you. Back to the fire. Sorry, that's such a striking... Um, someone mentioned that when you put fire up, it's an assault on your eyes. So I apologize for assaulting your eyes, but we are talking about honoring a holy God, so that's what I came up with. I think that like the shopper in that picture, we have a desire to tip the scales without actually changing what is actually on the tray. We have a desire to not only justify our sin, but to protect our sin as well. Hence the finger pushing the scale up. This is exactly what Hophni and Phinehas were determined to do with their own portion, with what they said was going to be theirs. God said, hey, here's what's going to be yours. And they said, that's not enough. We'd like something of what belongs to you as well. This is really easy to see in the matter of priesthood and those um, who are taking from the sacrifices that are designed to be for God. But it, we can recognize, too, that in our desire for more, what we're essentially doing is saying, God is unjust in what he has granted to me. And in doing so, we give very little weight to our sin and therefore give very little weight to the honor of God. Is it possible that like Eli, we're trying to tip the scales of our sin and our scales of the Lord, how we have decided to honor him, the weight that we want to give him in honor and glory? Remember that word in verse 29, to scorn means to kick, means to push back against, to disregard, as we talked about last week, where Samuel lived a life of devotion before the Lord, and yet the sons of Eli lived a life of disregard before him. If you look again at verse 30, we see the call that was placed on these priests is something that is very relevant to us. I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, declares the Lord, far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
I promise that you would go in and out before me forever. Uh, the anchor Bible commentary says that this is not just a matter of um, doing something that is pleasing for someone else, this idea of going in and out before someone, but to take on a task on behalf of someone else. So the priesthood was to, in one sense, represent God to the people as to represent the people to God, to do, so, do a task on someone's behalf. And, and the fact is, is that while we are not priests in the Old Testament sense, we are, by virtue of creation, made in the image of God and meant to represent him here on earth. We've been talking in uh, Sunday school with the kids uh, through the Ten Commandments, and one of the most striking things in that commandment, not to make a graven image of God, not to make an idol to bow down to, but particularly that idea of making something and saying, that's God. Part of why that's so wrong is because we ourselves have been made in God's image. Not that we're meant to be idols to bow down to, but that God has already imaged himself in us, and therefore given us a pretty serious calling to work on his behalf. And of course, then our sin drives us far away from that created purpose and leaves us doing nothing but kicking at it, in fact. Is there something that you're kicking against that God has actually called you to do? And, and this is not to say something that maybe you haven't noticed, but something that, that you know this is a part of the Christian life that I need to engage in and I don't want to be engaged in it. And I'm kicking at it. It's, it's very easy for us in a lot of cases to justify those kinds of things. One of the things that I've, I've heard increasingly, especially after the pandemic in 2020, is, is the justification for no longer being a part of a church on a regular basis. And, and that some will even claim that their social anxiety makes church a bad thing for them. The, the problem with that is not to say that, hey, God doesn't care about how you feel in public with other people. God does care. He cares about our emotions. He cares about our weaknesses and our strengths. He cares about those things. The problem is calling something that God has called good for you actually something that is bad for you. It's an unjust weighing of God, and it's an unjust weighing of sin. It is to say that my rejection of being in the life of the people of God is really not that bad of a thing because I'm just not that kind of person. God calls us in the book of Hebrews to not forsake the coming together of the brothers. That's not specifically about Sunday morning, but that could be part of it. It's more so about recognizing that your life in Christ is not to be lived alone. That's just one example, perhaps, something that we might kick against, might be unwilling to, to deepen our discipleship relationships with each other. Maybe there's something else for you. But the warning is very serious because as we kick against God and his commandments, we see with Eli the determination of God and his judgment to send Eli far from him. We can kick at God and his commandments and he's not going anywhere. But if God were to spurn and kick us, I mean we're out of here. <laughs> Distance is made when God acts. So is there something you're kicking against that God's called you to? Isaiah 29, verse 13, very important passage and one quoted multiple times in the New Testament. Isaiah says, generations after our story in 1 Samuel, of the people of God on behalf of God, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
Because it's not just a matter of making sure that you show up at the churchy events and that you, you, show, you put on a good show of your religious life. That you know how to say the right words. Those kind of things are not what truly honors God when he calls our hearts to be inclined to his. Look at this hopeful past part of the passage in here. I know you say hopeful. What was hopeful? Verse 35, I'll raise up for myself a, high, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. God uses this kind of language to direct us to where our focus needs to be at the matter of honoring him from our hearts. Because the, the terrible and just fate of those who do not honor God from the place of their hearts is to be cut off from God. The good news, though, as we sit where we are today, having the full revelation of God through his word, zooming generations forward to seeing a faithful high priest go and not only offer a sacrifice for us, and not only give a sacrifice for us, but to give himself for us. Christ himself was cut off for us so that he could become our faithful high priest. See, this verse 35, yes, it does have some immediate context to the priest Zadok, and we'll see him later on. But in the long term, in the, the foreshadowing that goes on here, points to a more a truer reality that is revealed in Christ. Because Christ alone is the one who will be raised up as a faithful priest, who does not scorn the sacrifices of God, who honors God rightly, who does according to what is in my heart and in my mind. God promises that for him he will build a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Eli's house, it's done. There was a near judgment coming with the, the, the um, execution of his sons and a far judgment coming in chapter 22 where his line will be completely wiped out except for one. But there was an even further judgment that was to come. And that further judgment landed on Christ. Because the words that we read here in verse 30, that those who despise him will be lightly esteemed, Christ has been lightly esteemed in their place. Christ has been lightly esteemed in your place. So that though we lived a life of dishonoring him time after time after time, through Christ, the penalty for that dishonor is paid in full, overwhelmingly. Isaiah, again, 53, verse 6, a popular Christmas passage. The Lord has laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity of us all. That weight of sin that we esteem lightly, that we push up on the scale and we go, it's really not that bad. We let go of it, we stand back, we see the terrible, destructive nature of sin falling on the only sinless Son of God, the iniquity of us all. Church, go to the cross where Christ was cut off so that you can see the true weight of your sin, your true weight of dishonoring a holy God but go also to the empty tomb. For there we see Christ is raised to fulfill what not even Zadok later on could do, to be that faithful priest, to do all that is in the mind and heart of a holy God. Christ absorbed the weight of dishonor, that light esteem, and conquered death because of who he was, the faithful priest. Christ fulfills the call of Aaron to be the one who forever will go in and out before God on our behalf. Christ is the one who will eternally have a sure and faithful house. That's a reference to you, church. You are the house of God. You are the building that God is putting together. 
And it is we who sit here in worship this morning who are enjoying this hopefulness in verse 35. To Christ we are called to repent, to return, to honor him, to turn from our dishonor, to rightly weigh sin, to rightly weigh the honor of God and fall before him in humility. Because as sure as God's work reverses earthly expectations, the curse of our sin can be reversed as well. As Christ honors God in our place. So what should we do? We need to live as a faithful house to the faithful priest. Are the scales of your life leaning on Christ? Have you removed all of your hopes, all of your good works, all of your church attendance, all of your good deeds? Have you taken them off of the scale and let Christ stand alone? We didn't address this in verse 30 directly, that God says that those who honor me I will honor. It kind of brings an interesting question up. What does that look like to be honored by God? I think it is just that very thing that we see in the end of our passage and the hopefulness of being built up into a sure house. See, the honor of the Christian is found in the participation of the mission of God. What, what more honorable thing could God ask you to? but to participate in what he is seeking to do in this world. He says, I will honor those who honor me, and the call of God in Christ is to become a faithful house for him. 1 Peter 2.9 has to be in this sermon, because there Peter writes, you, church, are a chosen race, just as Aaron was chosen. In the beginning of our passage, we too are chosen. We're a royal priesthood, as Christ is the faithful high priest, so we then are priests as well. Peter goes on to say we are a holy nation before a holy God whom we have dishonored. Now we have been made holy as well in Christ. Peter says we're a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 The honor, the weight that God places on the lives of his believers in every circumstance, no matter where we are, if we are... In, in a high estate, in, in career, or in life, if we, if we seem to think of ourselves as very noble, important, or if we seem to think of ourselves as very humble and unimportant, God has placed us in such a privileged position and has so honored those who honor him by honoring his son, by believing the message of his son. And we're called to walk in that, to be a faithful house to the faithful priest. The priesthood that we're called to is to go before God, to receive that complete access to his presence for just a couple of things. First of all, as we were called at the beginning, how God weighs our lives based on our response to his goodness, we go to the presence of God to access that goodness, to access an overwhelming storehouse of grace. That every time you come to his word, every time you come to prayer, every time you spend time with other believers, you are using God's means of grace to access more of his goodness into your life. That is the benefit of the priesthood. Not to go and pick and take whatever it is that we want that other people are offering to God, but rather to go to him as our only true source of grace and goodness. Secondly, we go before God as priests so that we might have direction for his purposes, no longer for our own, to cast all of our plans to the wind and say, Lord, whatever you want with my life, here it is. It's all yours. We go before God as priests as well for the betterment of others. This, again, was one of the big problems with Eli's house was that they looked at those who came to worship God as a means for their own gain. 
we follow a high priest who did not take from the offering, but became the offering. And so we too are called by Paul in Romans chapter 12 to offer our lives as living sacrifices. Why? Because it's your reasonable form of worship, reasonable service of worship. And through this, we will honor Christ. I have just three questions for you to consider this week in regards to these things. First one is, in your life, do you regularly respond to the goodness of Christ? Church, the truth is is that there is goodness poured out through the grace of God moment by moment. Do you take moments to recognize those things? I've probably said it before. One of the, the smartest things my wife has ever done for our family is to create a pattern of thankfulness at the kitchen table, to, to stop often, particularly on days where we're feeling grumpy, and for everyone around the table to say, what are you thankful for? How has God been good in your life? Do you take time in your life to regularly respond to the goodness of Christ? Secondly, in your position. That is, are you a mom? Are you a dad? Are you an uncle, an aunt, a neighbor, a grandma, a grandpa, um, a a teacher, a doctor? Uh, Who do you work for? Where do you go? What do you do? Your specific scenario of life. How is honoring Christ seen in those things? How will people see you honoring Christ? A lot of times we say, well, I put a bumper sticker on, or you know, I, I make sure that people know the way I voted, or I make sure people know this about me, or, or I wear a Christian t-shirt. It may not be that those things are the most effective means of honoring Christ in your position. It may be even more pointed that in a position where there are a lot of people around you lying and working for their own good, that your work for the good of others and your commitment to the truth honors Christ more than the t-shirts or bumper stickers that you might wear to work. Don't wear bumper stickers to work. Those should go on your cars. Last question. In your heart, is it your desire to please and represent Christ? Remember this call that is mentioned all the way back to Aaron to go in and out before me forever combines this idea of being in pleasing service to Christ and in representing him as well. How does that play out in your life? and particularly at the place of your heart where it begins. We do not want to be like those that Isaiah condemned as those who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Let us be those who draw near at the place of our hearts, seeking to represent Christ well as he has represented us before God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for the goodness that you've displayed to us through your word, through the graces of our lives, and most importantly, through the reality of what Christ has done in our place. Father, I pray this morning, particularly for anybody who may not know Jesus yet. May, a lot of this might just sound like, I don't really get it. There's pieces and parts that sound relevant. Lord, would you reveal your grace, your free gift of salvation to those that you've been working on their hearts, that are asking questions that are longing to know the freedom that Christ can afford for them because of what he's done at the cross, to forgive sins, to wipe us clean, to make us pure and holy and belong to you forever. And Lord, as we walk in that forever now, I pray you would help us to be a sure house, a faithful house, as those redeemed by our faithful high priest. And may he receive all the praise and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.